This is Same Difference. I'm Michael Higgins, and joining me is Rodriguez White, the uh, co-founder of Nashville Chapter of Black Lives Matter. Welcome, sir. Uh, thank you so much. And uh, this is um, you're my you're my second interview. You may be the first one played, okay. um, but uh, you know, in, in light of let, let's set the stage of where we're coming from, and then we'll talk about you a little bit to kind of put your your um, your frame of reference in, in mind here, but. Um, we are um, a couple of days after the uh, Dallas um, memorials, police memorials, where the, the five Dallas policemen are shot. So we're about, what, a week and a half yeah. out from uh, a black man shot and uh, murdered in uh, Baton Rouge and in Minnesota. Yeah. Um, and those are the ones that the media talks about, I will throw, because there have been other unarmed black right. men who have been killed in the there last There were also week. some brown, uh, some of my brown brothers and sisters last week who were also uh, murdered by the police. Yes. Yeah. And, um, and I'll bring in one I just read about in New York where a um, undercover police officer, a black undercover police officer, was shot by a white um, cop because, of course, a black man carrying a gun has to be Right. Yeah, criminal. Criminal. So that's the, you know, that, that's, you know, where for frame of reference, that's what we're coming into here. And so, uh, you, uh, co-founder of, uh, the, uh, Nashville, uh, BLM, what, you know, when, when did you guys start this? When, you know, what, what was the catalyst for saying, okay, Nashville needs this? Um, well, as after as Fer- if you needed one. Yeah. Well, after Ferguson had happened, um, I was making several trips back and forth from St. Louis, um, from Nashville to St. Louis, I had family up there. Sure. And so I just started taking trips up there, staying like sometimes two, three weeks at a time, coming back home for three days and then going back for another two weeks. Um, and after a while I just got back home and I would say it was right when the no indictment statement came out. Um, when they decided not to charge Darren Wilson sure. with the murder of Mike Brown. Um, Nashville, we started to have a couple of marches here and there. Uh, we had a big one where we shut down the highway for Mike Brown. And then a week later, we got the Eric Gardner, um, no indictment. So a community of us, we got together. We created something called Liberate Nashville. And it was really just a generic name, um, just to name the coalition of people who had came together. Um, you had people from Workers' Dignity, Vandy students, uh, different people who have been doing work in the community for a while sure. who decided to come around this uh, racial injustice initiative. Um, and from that, we wound up having a POC, People of Color group, that, uh, that, we, that was supposed to make the agenda, if you will, right, decide where the group was going. Sure. Um, around February, I had became pretty... Uh, I came in contact with Patrice Colors, uh, one of the co-founders of the Black Lives Matter Network. And uh, on her Facebook page, she said they were accepting new chapters. And so I talked to the group. I was like, I think we should apply for chapterhood with uh, Black Lives Matter. I know Patrice. I know her work. I know the people behind it. And I think we can have some really good support and uh, momentum if we became a BLM chapter. And Mm so last year, 2015, um, I want to say February we applied for chapterhood, and in May we officially became a chapter when we went to the uh, national convening of all the chapters. So, yeah, a little over a year we've been an official chapter. Very cool. And um, what is, uh, you know, as as we're we're starting to step into this, uh, you know, I, I think we've got plenty of time and, and uh, uh, you know, we can kind of cover cover things in, in, a, in a wide field here. Right. Um, your experience, I, I mean, I, I know we're talking Nashville, but, you know, this is, you know, pretty much a, a national, um, kind of a, a national, you know, uh, view as well. I think when you're, when you're talking about, well, this is, this is what happens in Nashville. Guess what? It happens a lot of places. Right, right. Uh, what has been your experience, uh, dealing with, uh, police situations? You know, have you had the same suspicion that everybody else has? Personally, I've never like really had like bad interactions with the police. I'm not gonna say, well, I've had some interactions, not necessarily any like brutality interactions, sure. but I know what happens because people around me have been affected. Sure. Um, and while it doesn't happen to me, like just hearing stories from my friends of one of them in Mount Juliet, um, 
where the cop was like, uh, he told the cop whatever he was doing was racist, and the cop response was, "That's over. Uh, that's not. That doesn't happen anymore." But I do have your information. If I pull you over one more time, uh, I can't remember the exact phrase. Basically, it was a, a way of referencing Rodney King, right? Yeah. And so he was saying that racism doesn't exist, but I will still beat you, yeah, because you're black. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. wait a minute, right? You know. So like, I've never, like I said, I've never had any. Uh, Things that like particularly stick out to me, but um, just knowing people in my community and just seeing what happens and seeing the over patrolling of North Nashville, like it's very apparent that something is happening. Well, that's and what, no and, and I've read it. Up. I've read about that where um, people are are getting ticketed for loitering that really didn't, right? You know, really were just hanging out. I, I read an article about that. What's going on? I mean. In the in that community, is that something that's new? I know that Operation Clean Streets has kind of you know right. affected. I, I live on the south side off of Nolansville Road. Um, again, focusing Nashville. We're here at Pancakes House in in Nashville recording this podcast. But very nice studio, by the way. <laughs> very cool. Uh, but that's you know we're we're like what I'm seeing are a lot of brown people being pulled over. Right. Um, I get pulled over. If my tail lights out, I get pulled over too. Yeah. Right. But inordinately, I see a lot of that happening on Nolansville Road. Whereas right. I think, you know, if they did it with this much uh, repetition in Bellevue on right. Highway 70, Highway right. 100, people would be upset and writing letters. Right. If they did it on Hillsborough Road or, you sure. know, uh, White Bridge Road even, you know. Um, you, and the police, they, they put out the uh, the locations of where they do Operation Safer Streets, and it's usually in black and brown communities. They talk about Gallatin Road and Dickerson and uh, places in Bordeaux, Clarksville Highway, but it's never in another area. And when you put so much police presence in one particular area, of course you're going to find everything. Like, go to Green Hills. You can drive probably 60 miles an hour down the road, and not a single cop. You probably won't as, see a single cop, like as, as long as I'm white. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, well, just in, like I've driven down Green Hills, and like you don't see that many cops. But in North Nashville, I live point three miles away from the police precinct, and psh, ton of them, like constantly. And and I got to say, I'm I'm playing a little unfair here, and and I'm I'm preaching to the choir, you know, when I'm when I'm saying that. So, I, and 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 I know that you know they say you know and you know it's like, do you know if you go to a, a black church or not? It's like if you can count the number of black people in your church, you do not go to an integrated church; you go right. to a white church. Right. And the same thing, I can count, you know, on my hand probably the number of black people that I think will be listening to this podcast, unless you promote it. Of course. So of course. so listen to your boy Ron. <laughs> Ron's going to take podcast. care of me. Absolutely. That's right. Yeah, You're I hope you, see you your promote black it too. Listenership go up skyrocket. That's right. <laughs> but that, but the deal is, you know, so I'm I'm playing I'm playing a little bit of that, but at the same time, um, there are you know people of non-color there are white people who are listening right. who are who are going to be like okay i've got questions so i'm going to i'm going to pose those to you as well okay. about you know let, let's just let's start off with one look ron racism's over it really is it doesn't happen anymore if we just don't talk about it if we just don't talk about it it'll be okay right because i don't see color that's another one we'll get to next but go ahead <laughs> i don't see color um if you have cancer, right, uh, which I view racism as a cancer in America, um, if you have cancer and you go to the doctor and your doctor says, hey, uh, you have cancer, you're not going to tell the doctor, no, don't, don't, don't talk about it. If you don't tell me about it, it doesn't happen. It doesn't exist, doctor. No, you have to actually deal with it. Sure. You have to go through chemo. You have to do whatever to actually deal with the cancer. Um, we can say that if we can ignore it all day, but Ignoring it doesn't change anything. It keeps it where it's at. It yeah. keeps it stagnant. Um, we, you have to move forward. You have to actually have dialogue about racism. And I think America is really scared to have that dialogue. And I think part of it is when we talk about equality, and particularly when black people are talking about equality, I think certain white people think that we want white people to be treated the way black people are. And that scares them, right? Because they know black people aren't treated right. So when they hear black people want equality, they're thinking, "No, I don't want. I don't want to be brought down to your level." 
when it's really the opposite way. We just want to be treated with the same amount of respect and privilege, et cetera, as white people are. A, a friend of mine, um, I'll give him a free plug on his blog, Chris Boskel. It's B O E S K O O L dot com. Hey, Chris. Uh, he is. Uh, he's got a uh, a blog that he puts out, and one of and it got picked up by Huffington Post. Uh, one of the uh, one of his articles, and his point in the headline is that when you are privileged, equality feels like oppression. Right. Ooh, Reverend. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's you. You catch his article, um, and uh, that's he. He was saying that this is, uh, you know, part of our problem. As, you know, as as white people, we think, well, this is exactly what you said. Well, wait a minute. I don't want to be like that. There's a professor. Um, boy, I can't remember her name right now. But her speaking to a white class, saying, "If you would like to be treated the way black people are treated, they raise your hand. Right. You know, nobody. Nobody. You know, I don't think you understood." you know, repeats the question, then you know, there's a problem, right? You know, there's a problem. Very much so. If, if you do not want to be treated the way black people are today, then, then why don't you? Because there's a problem. Chris Rock says something about how, uh, a poor white guy wouldn't want to trade places with him. And he's rich. <laughs> like, yeah. he, you know, like, like, yeah, it's just, he, he also says something about, um, this, and this kind of goes into like privilege and like capital and et cetera. Um, how in his neighborhood he lives next to Mary J. Blige and Jay Z, but his next door neighbor is a dentist, just a regular white dentist. Like yeah. just the <laughs> levels of like excess that people have. Is, exactly. Right. Well, and that's um, there was an article that I that I had mentioned to you off uh, off cast that I that I want to read that. Um, it's pretty quick, but uh, go, going in this vein of, you know, of what is white privilege, what do you see? And before I read the article, I was in North Carolina. Kids were at a, a trampoline jumping place, okay. drinking, drinking my bottle of water, ran out of water. And there was a little half, half wall thing, you know, where they have little party areas. Right. Now it didn't say employees only. It just you know, was, was over there and you figured you're probably not supposed to step back there, but I saw a sink and I didn't want to buy another bottle of water. Right. So I walked over and I, and I'm filling up and I'm standing there and I'm thinking now what would happen? You know, and it, it's like my privilege hit me at that point. I'm like, now maybe nothing, maybe right. nothing. Maybe, right. maybe if a black man did the same thing, maybe nothing would happen. Right. But that's an opportunity where I don't even have to think about it. Right. And I think that a man of color or a woman of color would be like, I don't want to mess with that. Yeah, that often happens. Like, even when I go into a store, like, just certain man mannerism, like, if I pick something up, I try to keep it above my waist. Like, <laughs> it's not something I even think about, like, sometimes. But, like, lately I have thought about, like, oh, you have held this CD, like, right next to your neck for the past 10 minutes. Like, <laughs> you need to put this down. I'm so not, I'm so not trying to pocket it. That's, right. uh, I, I was in a, um, I have no a, pockets in these pants, actually. <laughs> what am I doing? I'm not doing anything. That's, I, I, um, used to be very, very, very long haired and, um, still have the beard, but, but we were in a very high end Lord and Taylor kind of store. And there was nobody helping my friend. I was there with a friend and she was like, nobody's around to help. And I said, hang on, I'll get somebody. And I, I walked over, I started picking up little makeups and just setting them down. And it wasn't 10 seconds. And somebody, because I didn't have, I didn't look the part of a Lord and Taylor place. Right. You know, sometimes we're dealing with rat, uh, with uh, race and sometimes we're dealing with class. class right. And it wasn't, it wasn't fit 10, 15 seconds. And there was a lady walking over saying, can I help you? You know, and I right said, there. she needs some help right over there. If you would, please. <laughs> and it's like, you know, and it's like, yeah, fine. Take, take someone in. If you need help, have them start picking up stuff. And that's, and that's the way that, that will, that will flow. That's great. Um, so, but privilege, I had an, a, a great example that, that I've heard about, you know, being, you know, just being pulled over, but where, where do you see, uh, let's step away from interaction with the police, okay. but where do you see, um, when someone says, what do you mean white privilege? I'm not privileged. I'm poor. I don't have any money. Me and one of my friends had this conversation the other day, actually, um, where he was like, how am I privileged? I'm living in my friend's house and I live check to check. And I had a conversation with him like, you're privileged in that your mom has never had to have that talk with you, right? You're privileged in the fact that you walked out the house today not worrying about the police and that I sat at home all day Thursday, literally after 
uh, uh, Alton Sterling on Tuesday and an encounter with the police in Nashville Wednesday. And then home Wednesday night, I saw uh, on Facebook the murder of Philando uh, Castile. And so all day Thursday, my 6'3", 6'4", 250-pound black ass stayed at home because I was in fear of the police. You're privileging that. You don't have to have this conversation with your son. And what was that talk? You said uh, your mom hasn't had that talk. What's that talk? The, the, the talk about what to do when the police, when when the police uh, come to you. I mean, to a degree, I think everyone's kind of had that talk. But like, there's a difference between the white talk and the black talk. Like, the black talk is get your ass home alive. Like, whatever they say. Do don't make no questions. Don't do not nothing. Nothing. Just stand as still. It's, it's very. It's a fear tactic. It's almost like a fear talk. Like so, somebody said that that's what you know. That's what they say to uh, to hostages. Right. That's that's not what they need to be saying to citizens. Right. But they say that to hostages. Just stay calm and do whatever they say. Right. And is it, it, is that's not freedom to me. You know what I'm saying? Like I shouldn't have to fear you. You're supposed to be here for my safety. So when you pull up behind me, I should be like, Oh, maybe something's wrong. And he just wants to make sure I'm safe. But every time I see a cop car behind me, I'm like, Oh my God, what is this? What is about to happen? It's just like, I literally, even if they don't pull me over, like if they're just behind me. I can literally feel like my heart, go into my lungs somewhere and then when they finally pull away i can i can i I literally feel myself breathing again is every cop bad no no um the system that they work for is bad Uh, i have my cousin uh was a lieutenant in st louis one of the municipalities there my uncle is a detective in uh in miami and they're good guys but the system that they work for it's not good, and it's not their benefit. Um, actually, interesting. My cousin, while I'm getting uh, ran over, he was writing someone a ticket, and this other woman came by, and like kind of random. Something happened with his leg, but he he's out of work, so he hasn't been able to work in several years. Sure, and he can't even get his pension. Like he's been an officer for years, and he can't. He's like struggling to survive to get workers' comp or any type of benefits from the police force and you know it's, it's just hard you know sure. i understand it's a tough job and it may be dangerous but you signed up for it i didn't sign up to be harassed every day yeah i was just born black you yeah. can take that badge off at any moment and go back to a regular life i can't this is me all day 24 7 365 henry rollins Uh, wrote an article in L.A. Weekly that just recently appeared. So I'm quoting from L.A. Weekly. Um, In light of the recent police shootings in Texas and the deaths of Alton Sterling in Louisiana and Philando Castile in Minnesota, both killed by members of law enforcement, just the latest three of the many examples of obscene, needless deaths in America, one could conclude that all hell is broken loose and things are falling apart. I do not agree. Things are bad, but I would posit that they have been this way as far back into American history as you want to go. What has changed is the amount of information available to the average citizen. Thanks to cell phones and people employing social networking to spread news quickly, what goes on minute to minute has crossed into overload. Now that you can watch people die on Facebook, your evaluation of the facts and the sheer amount of information you want to deal with is up to you, but you can no longer say you don't know what's going on. The despicable litanies of willfully ignorant denial and misinformation I have heard spouted in the last several days by, I'm quoting here, by pieces of shit like Rudy Giuliani, Giuliani, (laughs) all but ensure that things will get worse. The mainstream media outlets allow this utter crap to slide by unchallenged and by doing so legitimize falsehoods that could get people killed. Ratings-based 24-7 for-profit media is the complete death of your true journalism and a catapult for propaganda. If white America experienced a fraction of what black America deals with regarding law enforcement, incarceration, the court system, employment, and countless other facts of life, they would immediately and collectively lose their minds. There are at least two different, there are at least two different Americas. They have existed in an environment of almost unbroken mutual exclusivity. That's over now. 
1969, when I was about eight years old, I saw the divide. I went to a school in Washington, D.C. with mostly African-American kids who were bussed in from different neighborhoods in the same city. It was a constantly harrowing experience. I got picked on for the color of my skin, pushed into the urinal, head slammed into the water fountain, shoved down the stairs. It was miserable. When I really started to understand the two Americas was in third grade. On the last day of school, we were all told if we had passed or failed for the year. There were several kids of color uh, uh, older than me, several kids older than me. They had already been held back and were getting older as their education stagnated. When some of these kids were told they had not passed, the expression on their faces didn't change. Earlier that year in the play area, kids had lined up for free bag lunches that were handed out. There were more kids than lunches. One kid put a pencil through the palm of the kid who got the last one. We all stood there and watched as he screamed. It was in this year that I understood that my life in America was going to be different, not only because of the color of my skin, but because of the advantages that came with it. I learned another lesson many years later. In 1991, I was on the first Lollapalooza tour. It was one of the best summers of my life. We spent a lot of time hanging out with Ice-T. We spent almost every day talking. He is one of the most articulate and intelligent people I have ever met. I wish I had a teaspoon of what he's got. I also spent time with his bandmates and crew. On days off, or when our buses would pull into the same place, we would eat together. All his guys wore gold. I have no idea what a necklace is worth, but it looked expensive to me. <laughs> we went into places, white patrons and staff <clears throat> tripped on these guys. This is when I understand, understood one of the reasons for the visible display of wealth. My whiteness assured them that I could pay for my meal. Mm. Ice-T and his guys had to demonstrate their ability to pay by literally wearing a mm. show of wealth. Mm-hmm. I'm an educated Caucasian heterosexual male. Does this ensure I will have success and live the American dream? Obviously it doesn't, but damn sure drops me on second base with a great opportunity to steal third. I live solidly in one of the, in one of the Americas, but have been aware of the other Americas for decades. For the last week, I have heard politicians use a phrase that nauseates me when I hear anyone say the need to come together. To that I say, you first motherfucker. Since an upgrade will not occur on a national level via presidential pen stroke or SCOTUS decision, you have to take it upon yourself to be an infinitely fantastic person every single day. There will be times when it will be a bitch to be so awesome, but you'll handle it. This century will be about incredible individuals, bold acts of kindness, and a genuine desire to at least try to see things from someone else's perspective are but two of the mandatory requirements for betterment moving forward. Don't wait for your government. It's a broken machine that can only deliver damaged goods. Prejudice coats the mechanics of the USA's uh, operating system. Attempts to clean the parts are attacked as big government special interest meddling. It's by no means a, a Gordian knot, but it's a total system retool that is required. It would be incredibly expensive and time consuming and the growing pains would be enormous. Not gonna happen. Equality, tolerance, and decency are not inherently American or human traits. They are values you choose to adopt and use or not. So be amazing all the time. That's Henry Rollins in LA Weekly. Wow. Wow, that was amazing. Do not need allies. You need accomplices. That's right. So where are you at with that? Big amen is what I got. Yeah, the, 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 yeah, amen. Reverend, pass the collection plate around. Let's go. <laughs> um, you know, the part that, that I'm really kind of stuck on, though, is uh, about him and Ice-T and why rappers, like, show a lot of jury and et cetera. Because, like, I've never really, like, some people say they should invest in other things, and I agree. But, like, I never really had a problem with showing the the big chain necklace and all that. And I never really understood why I never had a problem with it until now. Like, that's our way of saying, look, we can't afford this. We yeah. can. Like, that's easy. Um, but even Oprah is out here. Uh, when she went to Switzerland to buy a, what, $45,000 bag or whatever? Yeah, yeah. And the woman was like, I don't think you can afford that. Oprah can afford you, okay? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oprah could buy you out right now, and you yeah. would have no problem with it. Like, but we do kind of have to, like, show... Sometimes we have to be extra just to prove a point, you know? Sure. And, yeah, that was, wow. Wow. Um, yeah. So, 
what you know when when a white person will i mean and it's like and i don't know you know i will ask my friends when they're spouting off about i i had a a friend talk about uh, black lives matter and saying all kinds of derogatory things and and you know a buddy of mine you know i think you will agree there are some some knuckleheads anywhere you want to look right you know so so not not everything that blm you know that people who represent blm has has come off well but at the same time the spirit of it is Please recognize that, you know, that black lives matter. Yeah. Stop killing us. Recognize my humanity. Yes. So when, you know, do you have conversations? I mean, with white friends and, you know, because I asked my, my, you know, my white friends who are, who are derogatory towards things. I'm like, well, what do your black friends think? And sometimes they haven't talked to any black friends. Right. <laughs> um, cause that's where I, I feel like, I mean, even if it's a little step, Part of it is just, it, it, I mean, it's not going to fix it just talking, but that's a place to start. Right. Well, there are some white friends that I've talked to, but I'm at the point where I, I see they obviously don't want to get it. And I just stop. Like, I'm, sure. I'm, I'm not, I don't have the bandwidth to deal with you anymore. Like, no, sorry. I'm over my data amount for the month. <laughs> I like that. I'm writing down bandwidth. I yeah. Like I, I, who told me? I was in St. Louis. Uh, Brittany Pagnetti, uh, Pagnet. Um, said that I was like, I love that. Yeah, I don't have the bandwidth to deal with it anymore. Um, at this point, if you want to know what's happening, you can find out. Yeah, it's just like it's not my job to teach you about racism. That's why we have Surge standing up for race, racial justice, which is a uh, which is a group of white people organizing white people into racial racial justice work. Um, yeah, if you want to learn about what's happening, go over there. Let white people who have done anti-racist work teach you what it means to be anti-racist and so you can learn it. But my job is not to teach you that. My job is to try to survive being black in America every day. And part of me surviving is not sitting down and explaining to you the school-to-prison pipeline or the prison-industrial complex or how... Even though the 13th Amendment said we abolished slavery, there's still a part in it that said, actually, let me say the 13th Amendment word for word, if I can remember it. Um, Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment whereof the party has been duly convicted shall be within the United States or any jurisdiction thereof. I did pretty good. Yeah. Um, So basically it's saying, all right, you can't be a slave, you can't be a voluntary servitude, but... If we charge you with a crime, it's perfectly acceptable. So what does that make the prison system? Plantation. Sure. And that was the 13th Amendment. That was 1800s. So since the 1800s, this has been set in place that this is how we're going to keep slavery going. Um, Yeah, those are my concerns. You know what I'm saying? My concern is not sitting down teaching all my white friends what it means to be black and how they benefit from privilege. If you don't want to see it at this point, then... It's just being willfully ignorant. Sure. So what if we get it wrong? What if I'm trying and I get it wrong? I think you have to unlearn certain things. Like I can tell when someone's legit trying and when someone's just defending. Right. Sure. Um, yeah. I mean, there are people who even myself. Right. So. I identify as a cisgender, uh, queer black male, but I understand that I have certain privileges over other people, right? Sure. Um, being cisgendered, I have uh, access to things that my trans uh, gender friends don't. I can be in places that they can't be. So my job is to uplift them and, and, and make sure that they have the ability to get into these places. And... If not, and if I hear something bad about them, my job is to challenge that and, and correct people. Uh, I'm a man, so there's places that I can be that I can be that women can't be. I get paid more than women. I don't have to worry about street harassment. I don't have to worry about uh, whether the clothes I'm wearing will make someone say I was asking for it. You know, but my job as a man is to stand up to other men and say, "No, it's wrong. Stop slut shaming. We can have as much sex as we want." and no one says anything, but a woman, you know, who is confident in herself has multiple partners and we call her a slut and a whore and everything else. We have to stop that. We have to make sure that women are on equal footing. Um, 
So there's always a, a place of unlearning, right? And you just have to have an open mind. Sure. Take me to um, the first uh, Black Lives Matter uh, march that you guys did. Um, I don't. It wasn't officially a BLM march, but I think it was the beginning of something. Uh, I will say that was the what the Mike Brown, um, the march that we had after the no indictment uh, of Darren Wilson. In the murder, execution, lynching of Michael Brown. Um, came a couple of days after they announced the no indictment. Uh, me and some people who had been going to St. Louis, um, we got together and said, you know, let's go ahead. It started off as a vigil, actually. It was just going to be a vigil, but so many people came that we were just like, all right, let's do a quick march, right? So we... We started to do our march. We started at CJC, Criminal Justice Center. Um, I believe we went, what was the route? I want to say the route was, we went down second and turned right on Broadway, went back, I want to say, up fifth. Mm -hmm. um, then went back down Charlotte towards CJC. And one of my friends, who i know since Occupy, because I was part of the Occupy movement. Um, she comes to me, and she's like, you want to take the highway? And I'm like, look here. I've been wanting <laughs> to take that highway since Occupy. Let's do it. So we just started walking slowly. We walked over the bridge. We told people we were going over the bridge. Um, and as we kept going, we started, we saw the ramp. And we started walking up it, and the cops started, no, you can't go up there. You can't go up there. Please yeah. don't. Please don't. And so eventually they uh, they wound up getting some cop cars up there and actually blocked the intersection for us. Um, and we took the uh, took the highway, walked up to the next ramp. I think that's the Shelby Street exit. Mm -hmm. um, walked through James Casey uh, projects. Uh, you know, talked to the people out there, let them know this Marches for y'all. This isn't just about Mike Brown, but this is about all black lives, and y'all are part of this struggle. Uh, we went back towards the interstate, took it again. <laughs> this time live on TV. Cause actually, I uh, saw that. Yeah, because uh, Sky Arnold. Um, hope I don't get you in trouble, Sky. Uh, <laughs> Sky Arnold uh, from Fox 17. Oh, I'll put his channel and everything out there. Look at me. <laughs> he walked up to me. He was like, hey. Uh, if you pace it right enough, we have these backpacks and we can go live at 10. So I was like, hey, slow the hell down. <laughs> and so like right right towards 10 o'clock, we started walking and got on the interstate and it was live. And I think that was absolutely beautiful. Yeah, that was absolutely beautiful. Loved it. White guys are going to say, shouldn't block the interstate. Why are you doing that? Even even a even a conservative black man is going to say that. Right. What is your? Why are we blocking the interstate? Civil disobedience is. Hmm, how can I explain this? <laughs> Civil disobedience is. Um, it's not necessarily going to be convenient, right? Um, I think. Often people say, you know, Dr. King wouldn't do that. And how dare you do something like that? That's not what King would do. But, like, literally, do you think Selma to Montgomery March took place on the sidewalk? Like, <laughs> he, he blocked an entire highway for, like, three days. You know what I'm saying? Like, we're blocking it for 15 to 20 minutes. Imagine three days and not being able to travel. Um, and I think it, it, certain times it's meant to inconvenience. Like, yeah, you're not going to go home for these 30 minutes. Right, you're gonna be stuck in traffic an extra thirty minutes, but it's nothing compared to the fear, the literal fear of just being black and just the things that can happen to you at the hands of the police or at the hands of the state in general. Um, you might not care about it, but you're gonna know about it. And I think with enough civil disobedience, um, you're gonna, the mayor's gonna get calls. Everyone's going to get calls. You got to do something about these guys. Rather it be um, persecutors or whether it be just give them what they want. Um, at least that's my view. And other people have different views on why we do it. But for me personally, 
not speaking for the organization, but personally, sure. it's it's a uh, it's 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 meant to be an aggravating tactic. It's meant to say we are here, we are human. I'm willing to risk. I can't walk outside being black, but I'm willing to risk arrest so that you know I'm tired. I am literally tired. I risk getting ran over, but at least I'm taking it into my hands. I refuse to let an officer decide what to do with my life. At least I know that when I took that highway, I put it in my, it was in my control sure. at that moment, but it's not in your control. Yeah. So, um, in the fifties, right. the uh, lunch counter sit-ins, the same thing, same kind of thing is happening here. You're right. I mean, exactly what you said. Dr. King did block highways, right. did block stuff. Mm. So, when people were sitting at those counters, getting jerked off the counters and, right. and, and beaten and thrown and thrown down, right. th- this is the same type of. I mean, this is the same type of thing that it's like. If somebody doesn't, then it's going to stay the same. Right. I believe my uh, one of my I had a spiritual revival in St. Louis. So we can go on that in a minute. Um, All right. All right. But I believe one of my favorite reverends, Reverend Seku, said it best uh, that the police station is the modern day lunch counter. All right. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So getting up to St. Louis, uh, you go through my hometown, uh, Mount Vernon, Illinois. I yeah. Do, so you just yeah. go straight. I'll stop there every time to get gas. Oh, sweet. Yeah. Let's just say my name. That's yeah. my hometown. <laughs> That's all right. Uh, so that I was thinking, I'm like, there's no way that he doesn't go through through Mount Vernon to get there. 57 all to 64. the time. Yeah. All the time. So that's awesome. So what happened in St. Louis? What do you mean? Well, you said you had a spiritual revival. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, but, but, I mean, even let's go back to, to Ferguson, which there was something, I mean, inside of me when I'm watching what's going on. And there were, I, I'll tell you what I did one time. I'm, I'm watching it live, and there was a, um, a convenience store that was on fire. And the they, quick trip. And it and had the phone number right up there on the thing. I called. Cause I was like, I just wanted somebody to answer the phone. <laughs> I didn't even, I didn't have anything set up to record. I just wanted to be like, I just wanted to talk to somebody and, but nobody, nobody was in the mood to answer the phone at the time. Right. So that's all right. It's but, burning. So I'm yeah, pretty it, sure. It, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but there was, but I mean, the people were running in and out now, but I called, but at any rate, you know, but I, I felt like, and, and part of me now, you know, feels a little defeated, but I felt like something w- was really being birthed there that there was really, um, it was more than just, well, th- these are people who are destroying their own neighborhood, you know, and, or, or, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm watching the, you know, the, uh, the scopes with lasers being pointed at people, right. You know, and I'm seeing that and, you know, people were, were in America, by the way, in, in, in America. And there, there was something being birthed out of that, that, you know, that, you know, again, being removed from it as a white guy, I can go. Well, you know, really, people shouldn't act like that. And right. They shouldn't do that. But people are tired. Right. And we are, you know, you have to hear us. You have to hear that there is something wrong. Can't something be done? Right. And, and, that's, and, and that's where, you know, in, in my heart, that's what I saw. I felt like something was being birthed that I was hoping would be further along than now. Right. I, I believe Dr. King said it best. Uh, and I love Dr. King now that I've... Uh, actually explored him and then really I grew up with the whitewashing of Dr. King and once you understand the radical Dr. King it puts in a whole new perspective but he uh he said that a riot is the language of the unheard Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and those that make peaceful uh revolution impossible make violent revolution inevitable well in 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 fact his response to the uh and you know this so i'm just yeah i'm more or less saying it for the podcast right but you know his response to the uh the ministers you know the the letter from the birmingham jail Mm -hmm. but their request was can't you calm it down can't you not be can't you be nicer you know can't you be can't you just wait a little more uh because change will come eventually and we know that that's been being said for quite a while. I mean, Paul said Jesus was going to come back 2000 years ago. So yeah. <laughs> I'm still waiting for that. Right. <laughs> I got you. So, so, um, you know, for, for you in, in St. Louis, what, what was going on? Um, so it was Labor Day weekend after Mike Brown got murdered, killed Lynch. <laughs> um, let's say, so that was Labor Day weekend, 2014 black lives matter had announced a national mobilization to St. Louis. Um, 
And so I met some people here in Nashville who were doing the uh, mobilization. One of them is now one of my really good comrades. Shout out to Evan Bunch. Um, but so we went. They organized uh, some vans to go up there. Uh, and when I got up there, it was a lot of people from all across the country uh, who had heard about the mobilization and decided to come. And so a church, uh, St. John's UCC, where Starsky Wilson is the reverend, pastor, whatever, um, they were the church that held, like, our events. So, like, all the planning or music or whatever we were doing was held at St. John's UCC. And so Sunday, I went. We were having uh, our workshops or whatever in the basement, and they were, he was doing a sermon upstairs. And I hadn't really been religious at that point. I went, I was kind of raised Jehovah Witness, and then I got to the point where I was like, ah, I want to do this. Um, <laughs> then after high school, I discovered Michael Max, and so I kind of went on this Muslim, ep- uh, not epidemic, Muslim excursion for a little minute, and then I just was like, ah, I'm not doing anything. I just believe in something higher, right? Um, but I wasn't really, like, messing with Christianity. I, I viewed it as <laughs> the white man's religion, right? I got it. Um, and then I went upstairs to see the sermon. I was like, let me just see what this, let me see what this bastard is talking about, right? So I go up there, and the name of the sermon is <clears throat> The Revolutionary Politics of Jesus Christ. And he's talking, he's, ah, it's something you have to hear. If you look up Starsky Wilson, Revolution, Politics of Jesus Christ on YouTube and listen to the entire thing. But he's talking about how Jesus lived in the occupied neighborhood and grew up, uh, how the Roman Empire is, is similar to the American Empire and how he grew up with a militarized police force. And he's just connecting all these elements of Jesus' time to today's time. And I was like, I have never heard someone put Jesus in such a political and revolutionary light, right? And so I I thanked him afterwards. I was like, thank you, blah, blah, blah. Didn't really think too much about religion at that point. I went back for Ferguson in October, and Cornel West was speaking, and um, Reverend Tracy Blackman, she was the host of the event. We had people from NAACP, Seku was there, uh, Cornel West, some young people from Ferguson, et cetera, et cetera. And she stood up, and she mentioned something about how she felt her generation was at fault. She said that we confused access with ownership. I was just like, <laughs> like, yes. What? Who is this woman? Yeah. And uh, so I met her, met Seku, and just like started seeing this more radical side. To Christianity, this this side that used didn't use the Bible to condemn people, but rather to liberate people. Sure. And I had never seen anything like that, and it just absolutely blew my mind. And so, one more thing, I had went to um, you, you just talk, it's all right. Cool, cool. Yeah, I had went to a uh, where was it? It was supposed to be like a, a clergy meeting or whatever. I wound crashing it, <laughs> like I do everything. Um, and with some big, some of the biggest clergy, like social justice clergy from around the world. At this time, I have no idea who they are. My friend, Mickey, actually. Mickey was the one who took me. Okay. She, um, Mickey Scott B. Jones. Yeah. She she called me. She was like, hey, Ron, um, I'm going to St. Louis for this retreat. Uh, you should come with me if you want to just ride. I'm like, cool. So we get into the car. She ran a little Volkswagen. <laughs> we get into the car. We drive up there. And at that time, Operation Help a Hush, uh, Charles Wade, um, they were doing something where they were helping people who were coming out out of from, from outside St. Louis, uh, and they needed housing or whatever. They would help find it. So I emailed him. He never responded. We get to St. Louis. She's like, you can just chill in the meeting. And I walk in, and I see Tracy Blackman sitting there, and I see Starsky Wilson sitting there. And I'm like, hey, those are my people right there. Yeah. I see Karen Anderson and a couple of other clergy. And I'm like, cool, I'll chill in here for a little minute. Uh, people paid to get in there. I didn't pay a damn thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just in there eating food for free and all this. <laughs> and, uh, right. And so I would just listen to all these clergy members talk about, you know, Jesus and talk about how the young folks, even if they're not Christian, what they're doing out there is the work of Jesus Christ. 
right? I'm just hearing this uplifting. Now I'm like, this is pretty, pretty cool. So Charles never got back to him. No, he actually said that, uh, his, that the email had got hacked. So he didn't respond to the next day. So I had to find a place to sleep. Um, I met one of the clergy members up in St. Louis. He let me stay at his house. Actually gave me a guitar and everything. It was pretty cool. Wow. Yeah. Um, so we get back the next day. And it's the last day. And on this day is when they announced um, the no indictment in the case of Eric Gardner. Sure. Um, and I go into the bathroom and I just cry. I ain't let them see me cry. And I walk out and Shane Claiborne is outside. I have no idea who Shane Claiborne is at this point. I'm just like, who's this white dude with this big thing in his ear? And he's clergy. Who's this radical motherfucker? Right? <laughs> and uh, he stands up and he, he talks to me. The night before that he went to um, listen to some young folks from Ferguson talk. Um and they drove by the police station. He asked me, he was like, do you think we missed the opportunity last night? I said, what do you mean? He was like, you think we should have got out at the police station? I'm like, yeah, you should have. He was like, is there anything that we could do to um, to change that? And I was like, I don't know. I mean, I felt like this is the last day, so you can't go tonight. But that's something. You missed the opportunity last night. I, I, that was actually that conversation actually took place before we found out about Eric Gardner. Sure. Um, so then Eric Gardner, we find out that there's no indictment, and I go cry, and I walk back into the room, and I sit down there in small groups, and I sit next to Ivor Carruthers um, with Samuel DeWitt Proctor, and they ask me a question. I was just like, I don't have an answer, and she looks at me. She's like, "You all right?" I'm like, "Yeah, I'm all right," and she touches me. I don't know what it was. It was like one of those old, I just know she's been through it. She's seen the civil rights, and it was just the way she grabbed me. And I just started about to lose it. So she walks me outside the room. Me and Mickey, we're crying. She's like, what's wrong? I'm just like, enough is enough. And I'm crying in Ivor's arms. And I look up. I pull away, and I have the entire room of clergy outside of the hallway outside they were in the room and now everybody's outside the room they heard me crying and they have a circle formed around me this is jim wallace this is the archbishop of the armenian orthodox church this is um ruby sales one of the mothers of SNCC, um student Nonviolence coordinating committee uh so many people who have done social justice work in clerk in within religion and they're all crying and i walk around and they all whisper words of wisdom into my ear, and they're crying with me. And I was just like, I wasn't supposed to be here, but there's a reason I'm here. Yeah, God put me here. Um, and so I, I guess I inspired them so much that they actually wrapped up the, uh, the conference and decided to join the young people in the street at the uh, Department of Justice downtown St. Louis. They were doing a rally. Right after that, and I guess them seeing like how much this really hurt young people, mm-hmm. how, how like how much turmoil, how much of a burden this is to us, they just decided to take the streets with us. And I was just like, God put me there for a reason. Yeah. While I'm going to American Baptist College after that. Uh, yeah, didn't think I would be into theology, but <laughs> wound up really liking theology. Um, but yeah, it was definitely, St. Louis has definitely pulled me in. And now I realized, like, there was a point where I was doing this work because I liked the idea of liberation. And now, like, even sometimes when I want to pull away from it, I'm like, but my spirit requires that I do this. It's, it's, it's a spiritual requirement now that I have to do this. This is my way of carrying the cross. This is what it means to carry the cross. It might not be pretty. It might not be luxurious. And a lot of times it's going to be painful. And a lot of times you're going to lose, but you have to fight. As I'm learning and unlearning stuff, Black Lives Matter can easily convey the anger and frustration that the community the black community is feeling. Right. 
how do you convey that? How can we convey that hurt, that sadness, this story, this, the whole thing, the whole reason for this podcast, whether we're talking to people of other religions or of other races is to convey story. So someone can relate to that. And what you've got right now is the ear of everyone who may or may not agree with you, but they heard that you had something deep happen here. So you've got their ear. How can we convey that? How can you, how can the black community convey that? I'm not saying, I'm not saying that, that anger and frustration should not be conveyed. Right. But what I'm saying is, how do you get that across? How can they feel what you feel? How can you, how can you help them understand that you're feeling that? I don't think there's a way. I think it's something that you just have to experience. I don't think there's a way that you can just like explain it and people will get it. Uh, I think it's just something that you have to experience. I've never felt more at peace than in the streets or standing in front of a police line. I know that sounds crazy, but like sure. standing in front of a line full of riot cops, I've never felt more at peace. Like this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Like, if you're going to take me, take me now, but I'm at peace at what I'm doing right now. Um, like, I'll never forget. <coughs> I think it was Christmas. <coughs> I think it was Christmas Eve, um, of 2014. Um, yeah, it was Christmas Eve of 2014. The cops in St. Louis had just murdered somebody else. Um, and me and one of our friends, me and Mickey's friends, uh, Teresa, she hit me up and she's like, you want to you wanna go to St. Louis tomorrow? Like, yeah, let's do it. And so we get down to St. Louis, and they had a vigil at a church, at a cathedral, because um, it was midnight mass for Christmas. Sure. And i never forget, walking up, to that cathedral and seeing a line of riot cops in front of a cathedral, like 60, 50 to 60 cops all in riot gear Mm -hmm. in front of a cathedral. The very empire that killed Jesus for standing up to the Roman empire, to standing up to his oppression. It's the very empire that is standing in front of this church to protect what? I don't think it's something that you can convey. It's something you have to experience and see firsthand. But there's definitely a spiritual element, at least for me, to doing this work. Once I understood what it meant to, um, what Jesus meant when he said, uh, separate a son from his uh, father or a daughter from his mother, that I say it like this. Blood is thicker than water, but spirit is deeper than blood. That that our spiritual, that we may be related, but our, our spiritual father and our spiritual brother is, has much more meaning than than a blood brother or a blood sister. Um, it's nothing you can convey. It's just something that you have to take the risk and get out of your comfort zone and actually experience. When, um, when people decide to unlearn, right. when a white person decides I'm going to step out of my comfort zone, we've already talked about you, know, you, but in general, it may not be your job to teach the right. white person what's going on. Right. But if I come to you and I ask questions, right. should I be afraid of making a mistake? If you genuinely want to unlearn, I don't think you should. Um, at least me, I, I'm, I'm understanding of because I've unlearned some things this since Ferguson. Um, I'm not gonna say I was ever transphobic, but I wasn't necessarily an ally of trans people. But being out there in those streets and seeing that most of the people who are out there fighting with me aren't your cisgendered heteronormative uh, Christian black males. That a lot of times it was queer. Folks such as myself, when I wound up coming out, um, uh, it, it was it was single black mother. It was queer black women. It was trans women who were out there on the front lines day in and day out fighting because they're tired of seeing their brothers killed. Um, so I had to learn, learn a lot of the things that I had said about women and trans folks in general. Um, 
but yeah, unlearning is. I forgot what the question was. I just started. Is it is, is it okay to make a mistake? Yeah, it's okay to make a mistake. There, there's times where I've been around trans folks and I may have misgendered somebody, and they they correct me, and I say, "I'm sorry for misgendering you. My bad. I'm still learning." You know, um, it's okay to make mistakes. We're all going to make mistakes. We're all learning that what what. This this system has taught us. This society has taught us um, that men are better than women. That queer folks don't deserve the same rights as you know, straight folks. And we're we're all unlearning this stuff that has been packaged into us from the beginning. And so we're all going to make mistakes. It's just about are you willing to learn from those mistakes, or are you going to stay ignorant and be like, eh, it wasn't that big of a deal? Yeah. I'm still learning is a good thing to remember. Right. Still learning. Like you, you, We're all still learning. The moment you stop learning is the moment you stop living. Yeah. Very cool. We've been talking to Rodriguez White, co-founder of uh, the Nashville chapter of Black Lives Matter. Um, give me uh, e- email addresses, uh, websites you want to direct people to. This is your chance to, to throw it all out. Uh, cool. Yeah. Um, you can follow the Nashville chapter on Facebook. Uh, just look up Nat Black Lives Matter Nashville on Facebook. Um, you should also follow Surge, uh, especially if uh, for white people looking to get into anti-racist work. Surge stands for? Uh, standing Up for Racial Justice. Okay. It's a group of white people teaching white people how not to be racist. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. And uh, they, they have some really good people. Um, they are closest allies or accomplices. Um, actually, when we did our march Friday, they were the ones who did security. Okay, uh, cool. Yeah, and and I love Serge. Can't speak enough about them. Um, like I said, they're doing really good work in teaching uh, white people how to unlearn what they've learned throughout. You know, growing up. One of the um, oh, what was I going to say about Serge? Oh yeah. Uh, uh, Sometimes people ask why Black Lives Matter doesn't allow black people, I mean, white people in our meetings. And it's because um, there's a lot of trauma with being black, right? And there's a lot of things that we have to unpack and that we have to have a space for ourselves to unpack, right? Um, Women who have been raped or, you know, beaten by their husbands or whatever, they have a safe space, right? And it's understood that there's a reason men shouldn't come in there. It's because some of these women have had such dramatic experience that they don't feel comfortable unpacking everything around uh, around men. Um, And that sometimes men may make it. Well, not all men, but it's not at that point. It's not. That's not what it's about. Um, And so BLM has. We have uh, black people or POC only spaces so that we can collectively. unpack our trauma and that a lot of times white people come in with their own trauma or their own anti-black racism that they have to unlearn and that it's not it's not a space for us to teach you why that's why you have search for white people who have been doing this work for so long and they know what it's like to uh unpack racism and so they can do that with you because they've been through that experience cool um Follow me on Twitter at Random Ron, and uh, I think that's about all. I mean, Instagram, Random Ron, yeah. yeah. So Twitter, Instagram, Random Ron. There you go. Very cool. And um, you know, I grew up American Baptist. Did you? Did Did you know that American Baptist churches are white up north? Uh-uh. Surprise. Uh-uh. It you know American Baptist, Southern Baptist. Yeah. Slavery. Right. So it makes sense in the South, American Baptists are going to be black churches, but in the mm. North, American Baptist churches are white churches. Mm. Now, my grandma came down to Nashville in the 70s for the uh, quartet convention, you know, so all the singing. Okay. And they went, she was, she came down with some friends and they were like, oh, well, we look in the yellow pages here. There's American Baptist church here. Mm. So they go in, they pull up in the parking lot, they walk in and they are the only shining white <laughs> in the place. <laughs> And, and they looked at each other and they were like, we're, we're going to stay. 
And so the greatest part was when the pastor walked up with a big smile on his face and said, now, do we have any visitors here today? <laughs> and my grandma stood up and said, we bring greetings from your brothers and sisters in the North in Illinois. We're American Baptist church. And that was the first time a lot of people realized that, you know, and, and so it may be two different organizations that, right. that, that have the headquarters. I know American Baptist college. Um, is, I, I, at one point I've, believe they were funded by the National Baptist Convention. I know it was set up so that black people in the South, uh, particularly in this region, um, could have a way of learning theology. Uh, so I don't know necessarily the school is like an American Baptist uh, institution, but I know they used the name. And it's right, it's, it has a Baptist connection, but I think lately they've been getting a little bit more radical than the Baptists would like or whatever <laughs> Baptist Convention they're part of would like. And so, yeah, things are changing a little bit, but yeah. that's the way I like it. But that's a, it made me grin when you said that. Cause I'm like, yeah, I grew up that. So <laughs> I usually, any person of color that is American Baptist, I'm like, you know, I grew up that. And then people are like, what? <laughs> that's the way it happened. <laughs> cool. Rodriguez White, thank you for joining me. Thank this so has much. been Same Difference. We are. We are. Cool, man. Thanks. Thank you.